right, church, grab those Bibles and let's open them up to Romans chapter 1. As you're finding your place in the scriptures, I'd like to share with you uh, a letter that we received uh, this past week. Uh, For those of you that helped out so much with uh, us serving as a warming center for the community, and even this past week in the distribution of water and food to our community, I just wanted to share this letter of encouragement with you. It says, uh, Dear Christian brothers and sisters and all who made it possible to open a warming center at First Baptist Church Kingsland, thank you all for the hot food, drinks, and the warmth of your building facilities. You were very friendly and helpful and made sure everyone who came in got what they needed. Warming center was a good word to describe this special place of Christian service and charity. Not only did you keep bodies warm and provide hot food, but you warmed our hearts and renewed our spirits as well. From the deepest parts of our hearts, we thank you for being such good, caring Christians who are faithful to do God's work daily and in times like these. As the hymn goes, in times like these, we need a Savior. In times like these, We need an anchor. We will never forget your kindness. So thank you all that made those two weeks. It's hard to believe. The ice storm, two weeks removed from it. And here we are. Today, I think we have highs of near 80 degrees today. How beautiful is that? Thank you for all that you've done. For those that served so faithfully and so long during those days. Um, I hope that you've been able to get some rest and to recover. Uh, Leading up to to this week, we got some good news this morning I needed to share. I'm looking for Cheryl Davis. Is she around? No? Cheryl Davis gave me word today uh, that she received word from her son that he's going to be returning home after two years of service in Kuwait. So she wanted to make that known. That's fantastic. Thank you, Cheryl, for giving us that update. Uh, We do have our Equipping You that happens on Wednesday night. Meal starts at 5 to 5.45. Classes start at 6. I do a class in here over the attributes of God. However, I will not be leading a class this week. Uh, The family and I will be on the road to Missouri to do a wedding uh, this weekend up there. So the attributes of God class will not be meeting Wednesday Uh, the Mama Bear Apologetics will not be meeting this Wednesday, but all the other groups, all the other ministries will be happening. Come have a meal, enjoy your time together, and pray for us as we are, those 12-hour drives are a pain. They get longer and longer each time, I feel. So anyway, we'll be doing that. I'll, I'll be missing you guys as we are away, but looking forward to getting back. Now this morning... We're going to do part three over our series, and at least the messages, over verses 16 and 17. Uh, and so we'll finish up verse number 17 uh, today, and then the next time that I preach, we'll actually go through verses 18 through 32. Massive section right there. Lofty goals for our next gathering. We'll see if it actually plays out uh, or not, but I think it will. Uh, This morning, we're going to give consideration because we see how Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. We know from uh, the first time that he's not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the good news 
of God, from God. It's not man's good news. It's God's good news. Uh, and then the last time we saw that he's not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God to save. This morning we're going to see that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the revelation of God's righteousness. Beginning in verse number 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, talking about the gospel, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So mankind has a, a serious problem. We have a tendency to think that we can be righteous on our own. We think that we can be good enough and that if we do just enough good, then somehow, some way, God will take an evaluation of all the good that we've done and he will think that we will be acceptable into his sight. There's a major problem with that kind of thinking. While we might strive to do good, while we might work hard to be good, the reality is goodness is not the standard or the measure by which God views us. It's not about how good we can be. The standard and the expectation is perfection. Perfection. That's the standard. That's the measure. And there's not enough good that we could ever do on our own that would give us a fair balance of perfection before God. It doesn't work that way. God is perfect. He is perfectly righteous in and of himself. Therefore, he cannot nor he will not allow for unrighteousness or imperfection to be in his presence. We cannot live without God, at least in our imperfect and unrighteous condition. So if we're going to have any hope of being able to dwell with God for all eternity, then we need something divine, something miraculous must occur in order to make that happen. The only way that we can dwell with God for all eternity is to be perfect. How does that happen? We're imperfect beings. How can an imperfect being achieve perfect righteousness in the eyes of our Lord? Well, thankfully, the Scriptures are not silent to this issue. Uh, in fact, you have your Bibles open to Romans. Look over at Romans chapter 4. Uh, we'll get to chapter 4 eventually, but in it, it is saturated with the answer to this question. You see, when a person truly believes in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, God takes that person's faith and they credit it as righteousness. In Romans chapter 4, you'll see it all throughout. Look at verse number 3. It says, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse number 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Go down to verse number 9. In this blessing then on the is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say 
faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Oh, he continues. Look at verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. Again, in verse number 22, it says there, therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. One more place in verse number 24. But for our sake also, to whom, to whom it will be credited, to whom what will be credited? Righteousness. To whom righteousness will be credited as those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So, so here's the deal. When a person really believes in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior, God takes that person's faith and he counts it for righteousness. The person isn't righteous on their own. They, they, they can't be. We're still imperfect, still prone to, to sin, still often falling short of the glory of God. So, so how is it that, that our faith can be credited to us as perfect righteousness? Well, the gospel gives us the answer. Because the gospel is the revelation of God's righteousness. It reveals how we can be made righteous and how we can be reconciled unto God. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 21, Paul writes and he says, He made him who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And this is one of the great verses that proclaim the unbelievable love of God. It is a verse that has so much compacted within it that we could spend a lifetime studying it and still never fully appreciate or understand what this verse is saying to us. For instance, think it is impossible for us to fully grasp how God could make Jesus his son to become sin for us. Yes, that, that's what the scriptures declare. God made him who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. So, so how is it possible for Christ to be made sin for us? I want you to notice, I'll leave that verse on the screen for a little bit, because I want you to see that there are three points that are being declared here. First of all, that Jesus knew no sin. One of the very reasons why Jesus came and dwelt among us was so that he might live a sinless and perfect life. As man, he never broke the law of God. He never went contrary to the will of God. Jesus never sinned, not even close did he ever sin. Therefore, Jesus can stand before God as the perfect man, the ideal example for us all. He had secured the ideal and perfect righteousness. Therefore, his righteousness could stand as the ideal righteousness for mankind. 
Jesus gives us the ideal pattern. The the righteousness of Jesus and only the righteousness of Jesus could be counted as righteousness for man. And so we see that Jesus knew no sin. And then the, the text tells us that God made Christ to be sin for us. It's a big, bold declaration. But this was absolutely necessary. Why is it necessary? It's necessary because we need more than just righteousness to be able to stand before a perfect God. Because because of sin, the wages of sin is death. And, and, And so because of our sin in the past, even to be declared righteous in the present, still doesn't remove the consequences of our sin. And that sin deserves judgment. As sin, as sinful beings, we, we stand condemned before the holiness and the righteousness of God. So we need more than just being declared righteous moving forward. We need for our sin to be atoned for, to be paid for, to be dealt with. And so the judgment and condemnation our sin deserves has already been taken care of by God because God laid all of that upon His Son on the cross. So all the guilt and condemnation of sin, God placed it upon Jesus and He allowed His Son to bear it for mankind. So Jesus became sin for us. How is it that He was able to do that? Because he was the ideal, the perfect man. He had the perfect righteousness. So because of his perfect righteousness, he could become the ideal, the perfect sin bearer for mankind. And so there's this dynamic exchange that happens. Jesus takes on the sin of mankind. So that for those that believe in Christ, then that God will do this holy exchange where He removes our sin from us and He credits us with the righteousness that belongs to Jesus. So Jesus knew no sin. And the number two, God made Christ to be sin for us. And then number three, God's purpose was that we might be made the righteousness of God in Jesus. So, so what does this mean? Very simply, it means that when a person believes in Jesus Christ, God takes that person's faith and he credits it as righteousness. And so that person is not righteous in and of their own, but God considers and credits that person as being righteous because of their faith that the person has in the Son of God. Like, go back to Romans chapter 1, verse number 17. So, so we have a serious problem, and the problem is that thinking that we could be righteous on our own, and so the answer to our problem is faith. And that's why verse number one, 17 says, for in it, we're talking about the gospel, so for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, 
but the righteous man shall live by faith. So when a person believes the gospel, God takes that person's faith and credits it as righteousness. This is called justification. This is what it means to be justified by God and before God. To be justified or to justify is a legal term that would be used in the court system. It pictures someone on trial before a holy God. That person that's on trial stands before God, the judge, condemned. Condemned because of the guilt of their sin and the broken relationship that it uh, is the result of that sin. So this is a legal term. And so how can they be restored? And how can that relationship be repaired? Well, in our court system, uh, someone could be, uh, they could be rendered or, or acquitted uh, of a crime. If someone is acquitted, then they're declared innocent. But that doesn't happen within the divine court. Because the fact of the matter is, we're all guilty. We're all guilty. None of us can be rendered innocent because our sin proves otherwise. And so when a person appears before God, they are anything but innocent. We, we stand before God utterly guilty and eternally condemned because of sin but something beautiful happens when we sincerely trust and believe in jesus again god takes the faith and he credits that as righteousness so so god counts the person that means god judges them and god treats the person as though they were innocent the in, the individual is not innocent they know that god knows that but, but they're treated as though they are innocent. That's how God views them. Because he sees the righteousness of his son covering up the sin of the individual who believes in the son. That's why scripture tells us, uh, go, go back to uh, Romans chapter 4. I'll put it on the screen, verse number 5. He says there, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So his faith is viewed as and is credited as being righteous. So in response to faith, the righteousness that is imputed by God occurs through a process called justification. In our English language, we have a hard time making a connection sometimes between righteousness and justifying. In the English language, these terms seem unrelated to one another. But in the Greek, oh, that's not the case at all. In the Greek, these two terms are directly connected to each other. Let's teach you a little Greek this morning, if we can on the screen, you'll see righteousness. Righteousness comes from this Greek word, dikaiosuni. Uh, dikaiosuni. That's the Greek word for righteousness. Now we see uh, the, the Greek word that we translate as justify comes from this Greek word, uh, dikaio. 
You see the root for both of those words directly connected to, to one another? Paul uses that the noun form of this word, dikeosuni, righteousness, many times in his letters. In fact, for those that want to see them all, in the book of Romans, he uses that term 33 times. 33 times. I'll leave this up here long enough that you can write those down and you can discover them for yourself. So he uses the Greek noun, dikeosuni, 33 times, then he uses the verb tense of that word, uh, DKO, he uses that some 15 times in the book of Romans. So, so why do I share that? Because of this reality, to justify a person is to declare that individual legally righteous. So to justify a person is to make the declaration that that person is legally righteous. So so back to Romans 1, verse 17. This is the key. It's the key verse, I think, to the letter. Because in it, it announces the theme of the letter, and that is the righteousness of God. So, So consider this. God's righteousness is revealed in and through the gospel. What that means, uh, it means uh, in the death of Jesus, God reveals his righteousness by punishing sin. And in the resurrection of Jesus, God reveals his righteousness by making salvation available to those who believe. So his righteousness is revealed in the death and in the resurrection of our Lord. So the the problem of how can God forgive sinners and still be holy, well, well, the problem to that question is answered in the gospel. It is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that God is seen as both uh, the the judge or the just and the justifier. It's only through Jesus. It's all through him. Look at the closing words of verse number 17. Paul says, The righteous man shall live by faith. So the gospel reveals a righteousness that is by faith. Here, Paul is referring back uh, to an Old Testament book. That book is called Habakkuk. In fact, he's referring back to Habakkuk chapter 2. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse number 4, It says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. This verse, Habakkuk 2, verse number 4, is quoted three times in the New Testament. Three times. In fact, a different point is emphasized each time that verse is used. When using this verse in the three times in the New Testament, it reveals to us how a person can be just with God. The three references, we've already seen one, Romans chapter 1, verse number 17. The second reference is in Galatians chapter 3, verse number 11. The third place is in Hebrews chapter 10, 
verse number 38. So like I said, it's used three times. A different point is emphasized each time that it is used. For example, in Romans, the point that is emphasized, the emphasis is upon the righteous. In Galatians, the point that is emphasized is on the phrase, shall live. And then in Hebrews, the point that's being emphasized is on the phrase, by faith. So let's start with Romans, right? The righteous man shall live by faith. So who can live by faith? Only the righteous. Only the righteous can live by faith. People often make two claims when it comes to justification. One claim they make directly. The second claim is made indirectly, but it's a result of the first claim that they make. For instance, there is a tendency when it comes to justification for someone to to say, well, all that God expects from me is simply to do the very best that I can. To do my best. And in the end, God will be willing to overlook everything else. When a person claims that they can be justified before God by being faithful to doing the best that they can, well, they're also indirectly making the claim that they expect God to excuse or overlook their sin. Here's a simple reality. God doesn't excuse sin. God doesn't overlook sin. God forgives sin. He won't excuse it. He's not going to overlook it. Excusing it would be nothing more than giving a license to an individual to continue on in sin. So so therefore, a person is not justified by doing the best that they can do. They're not justified by trying to live after the law. No, a person is justified or considered righteous by faith, by trusting in God to forgive them of their sin. So once a person has, has trusted in Jesus by faith, God takes that person's faith and he counts it as righteousness. And a righteous person is then supposed to live by faith. See, apart from Christ, there is no opportunity, there is no hope for us to live by faith. So Romans tells us about the righteous. Looking at Galatians chapter 3, verse number 11, and tells us how we should live. There it says, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, my bad, there it is, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. The emphasis is upon how they shall live. They shall live. In other words, by what rule governs the person's life. It's the principle of faith, not the principle of works. Sinful human beings cannot, on their own, obtain the perfection that is demanded by the law. Any good intention that says, I'll do better next time, or I'll try not to ever do that again, usually ends up in failure. 
So the law was given not to save us. The law was given to reveal to us our need for a Savior. And so, Paul's point in Habakkuk's declaration that the righteous shall live by faith, he makes that point in order to show us that by trusting God, by believing in His provision for our sin, by living our lives in full submission unto Him, then we can finally begin to break the pattern of sin in our lives. It's only through Christ, a person who has been declared righteous by faith, shall live by faith. We have been saved by faith, therefore we are called to live by faith. Which gets us into Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 35 through 38. There it says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. What he's saying is those that are in Christ are to live by faith. They're to walk by faith. Faith should be the driving force in how we live our lives. In other words, we're not to be living our lives by feelings or emotions. We're to live our lives by faith. There's a tendency of people, even among believers, and that is to, to live their lives in accordance to how they feel or the emotions that they're experiencing. People tend to act upon their feelings. So if they feel bad, They'll act irresponsibly, griping and complaining along the way. If they feel good, they may act happy, and, and they might be pleasant to be around. You see, their behavior is determined by how they feel, and their actions are based upon those emotional experiences. But living by our feelings is contrary to the Word of God. Our feelings are deceptive. Feelings are going to lead you astray. Don't ever live your life by your feelings. And for whatever you do, don't ever give somebody the advice, follow your heart. Oh man, your heart is wicked. Prone to wander. Prone to deceive. Don't ever follow your heart. Lead your heart. Proverbs chapter 4 says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. In other words, guard your heart, for it affects everything that you do. Jesus says, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. So when you say that offensive word, and then you go, mm, I don't know where that came from. Well, I do. came from your heart. Satan just didn't cast that word up from hell and plant it into your heart so that you might accidentally slip and speak it. No. 
that, that, that language, that coarseness that comes from your mouth is because it's in your heart. Don't ever get caught up in this cycle of, of, of leading our lives and, and basing what we do and how we do it based upon how we feel. No, our lives should be governed by the Word of God. And we do what His Word commands us to do. It's not about feelings. Your feelings are irrelevant in the matter. My feelings are irrelevant in the matter. Jesus didn't say, hey, if you feel like it, why don't you tell these people who are lost, headed towards hell, why don't you tell them of the good news that that I have to give? But only if you feel like it. If you feel uncomfortable, if you feel unprepared, then you don't have to worry about it. Let your feelings guide your actions. That's not how it works. And so, Hebrews gives us that that last little bit on, on how we're to live this life. We're to live it by faith. The Gospel shows us both how righteous and how merciful our God is. And when we trust Jesus with our lives, God restores us and He makes us right in our relationship with Him. From start to finish, from faith to faith, God declares us as having a right standing with Him because what was accomplished in and among His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the good news. That's the news that we are commanded to make known among the nations. That's the good news that we are to submit and to surrender our lives upon. The the first step in the revelation of the righteousness of God provided to people by faith, the first step of this revelation of righteousness is to make known our need for it by declaring us guilty and condemned before Him. That's why we get to this next section. It's going to mess some of us up. It's going to seem like an abrupt change that happens in verse number 18. I mean, go ahead and look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So the first step in the revelation of the righteousness of God is to make known to us our need of receiving that righteousness in our own lives. Look, it took Paul 17 verses to crank out his introduction, right? It's taken me seven sermons to get through those 17 verses. But in verse number 18, you're going to see how it all begins to come together. Beginning in verse 18, we've we've got to consider the question, why do we need the gospel? Verses 1 through 17 says there's this good news that needs to be declared. So the question now is, why? Why do we need it? Well, the answer in brief is because without it, we're lost. We're lost. And then we're going to get into the meat of the matter. I mean, think about it. Uh, Verses 18 through 32, we begin to wrestle with, well, what about those that have never heard it? If they've never heard it, are they lost without it? 
Well, the answer is contained there. If you need to know the answer right now, the answer is yes, they're lost without it. I'll explain it later. When we get to chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, the question, what about the self-righteous moralists? Whether they're Jews or Gentiles, those self-righteous individuals, are they lost without the gospel? The answer, yes, they are. Chapter 2, verses 17 through chapter 3, verse number 8. We'll give consideration to what about God's chosen people? What about the Jews? Are Jewish people lost without the gospel? The answer to that is yes. We'll get to that. But we'll finish up this section when we get to verse 9 through verse number 20. And that is, what about everyone? All of mankind. Is all of mankind lost without the gospel? The answer is yes. But today, we're not pausing to give consideration to what about those who've never heard. We're not pausing to think about what about the self-righteous individuals We're not pausing to think and reflect upon what about the Jewish people? We're not pausing to think about what about everyone that has ever lived or who will ever live? The question that we consider right here and right now is not what about them, it's what about you? Do you believe? Remember that belief, it it leads to a commitment. Do you believe? Do you trust and receive the sacrificial atonement of Jesus Christ? And by faith, do you receive that into your heart and life so that God might credit that faith as righteousness in you? Let's pray. Father, as we pray and give consideration to your word today, I ask you, how do you want us to respond in this moment? There are some that are here that truthfully, Father, they need to submit their lives unto you. They need to confess Jesus as Lord and receive him as Savior. Father, I pray that your spirit would move among those individuals for all of us. Are we willing to admit that you alone have the right to rule and to reign over our lives? For each of us, will we surrender our will unto you? Will we go where you send us? Will we do what you ask of us? Will we share the gospel for those that are in need? Father, help us all to serve you faithfully. And as we reflect on today, any prayers that need to be prayed, Decisions that need to be made. Sins that need to be confessed. May we not rush through this moment, Father. But may we all ask you, what's the one thing 
that you desire from me in this moment. We commit this time unto you. Be pleased by what you see among us. 